Well, good morning, everybody. You were probably expecting communion by now. Hold on. Just, just wait for it. It's coming today. Um, <clears throat> so 75% of Americans are chronically dehydrated. Do you all know that? This is a... Uh, a, a nod to those who might have been in Project Timothy. Uh, apparently, this has become a, a a joke amongst those who were there. But this is roughly the same amount, by the way, of people who have regular church attendance. Is that a coincidence? Hundred percent, yes. <laughs> uh, to be transparent, like I said, there was at least two sermons that that uh, our teens and leaders heard of this. But but it it really just that stat alone, I think, does allow us to start seeing things. I actually have a, a graphic up here of of what the the chronically uh, dehydrated might start to experience. You don't have to read that. Just know that that if you're thirsty all the time, your body starts to betray it. Right? If, if you have been going too long with too many things coming out of you and not enough things coming into you, your body starts to break down in ways that you may or may not expect. Um, when we pour out more than what we take in, muscle weakness, cramps, constipation, dry, flaky skin, altered kidney, heart, or digestive function, it's not good. Y'all should get a drink of water. Maybe not now, but if you need a drink of water, you can go get one right now. I, I think it's relevant to what we're going to be talking about. This is a, a new series on spiritual desire. We've got that nice graphic here. There's going to be a few themes that we talk about as we go through this whole series. Um, but I think there's some things that you're going to be able to, to pick up on from all the scriptures, from all the talks that we're going to have here. Um, what I want to do this morning is kind of set the table. See how it's all references to food and drink and everything? Uh, for the feast that's to come. You see what I did there again? It's going to happen. Um, have you ever tried to move by discipline rather than by heart? It's a losing battle, right? If we try to move by just sheer force of will, we can do it for a while, but if your heart is not in it, it's going to break down. Uh, if you're training for a marathon and you're just trying to do it because you don't love running and you hate this, it gets harder with every step. <laughs> but if you understand, if you believe in why we're doing this, if there's something in you that kind of breaks through and says there's life to be found here and there's reasons for this, if you're doing this by desire and not by force of will, it's a very different kind of race that we run. Um, too often, I think we try to just be better. I think we just try to soldier forth. We just try to make this about something that we can do with our own two hands, something that we, we want to believe, something that we want to be true. And so we just try to force these things out, and it doesn't go well. We think if we can get strict enough, good enough, maybe we'll accomplish great things. But what I'm learning later on in my years is that we can trust him who made us. This is actually a very big statement. We can trust him who made us. We can trust our design. We can lean into our hunger and our thirst. That's actually a profound thought that I don't think many of us in the religious sphere particularly think about, is that we can trust our desires. We can trust those things in our soul that are crying out for more. Hunger is in our nature, and we don't grow out of it. It's like when the very first thing that newborn babies do is they crave milk. They, they, they have a hunger, they have a thirst, and they just know that they are a creature of hunger, and it's meant to be satisfied. We are aching creatures, and those longings must be fed. They cannot be ignored. Augustine says it this way, You have made us for yourself, and we are restless until we find our rest in you. 
we can trust our design. We can trust our nature, that we are made in the image of God and we are made to know him. We are made to be in relationship with him. And our souls, our emotions, our bodies will betray us if we try to, to, to deny this hunger. If you are chronically dehydrated, your body will betray you and it will start to break down. If we deny our spiritual hunger and our spiritual thirst, our souls, our emotions, our well-being will break down. I think part of this whole sermon series is meant on enlarging our idea of what it means to have the table central. The Lord first said this to me um, when I was on sabbatical, that, that he wanted us to be a church. You've heard this, right? That doesn't make the pulpit central, but makes the table central. And the, the very clear, quick, easy interpretation of that is the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And that's a good interpretation of it, and it's right and accurate. But it's not all. For the table to be central for us means a lot more than saying that in the middle of our service, in the middle of our, our, our whole place of gathering is a table. It means that in our lives, that the table is something that the Lord is calling our attention to. It's not meant to be about the facts and figures you can hold on into your head. It's not about the apologetics of our faith. It's about that communion with each other, that communion with the world, bridging that gap between what we are living out and what the Lord wants us to be living out. Bridging that gap about how we are sustained from one day to the next. About realizing what we've been made to do. And realizing how the table is a place where we come together for sharing of ideas, of lives, of hope, of joy, of celebration, of sorrow, of all of that. So it's not just the Eucharist. It's not just the Lord's Supper. It's about community. Sharing and sustaining life. Finding pleasure in life. The, the worst seasons in my life are when we're so here and there and everything in our family that we don't come to the family's table together. It happens, right? Soccer practice and, and band practice and, and all these other things and boys that want to date my daughters, you know, whatever it may be that, that, that pull us away <laughs> from this table, right? I know, that's way too early. But right, this idea that, that the, the family table is, is this keystone of our life. I mean, Norman Rockwell makes paintings about this, right? That this idea that we come together, that we share, that we reflect, that we enjoy this. And there's these seasons of life where that is just not as present. It's not as real. And it begins to erode how I understand what's going on in my family's life. It, it erodes my feeling of closeness and intimacy and compassion and understanding. And by the way, I just don't mean the act of eating. I mean the act of preparing for the meal. I mean the act of cleaning up after we've eaten. All of that stuff, I believe, is a spiritual good that brings people together in a way that is deeper and that is really not accomplished by anything else. I think if you go play miniature golf, if you go to the, to the movies, if, if you do whatever it may be, even if you go to a restaurant, it's not quite the same thing. There's something about that table, there's something about that engagement that really goes deep. And, uh, and this is not just a, a call for some traditional family values or whatever like that, even though that might be there as well. This is a look at the spiritual things that happen around the table, calling our attention to that and saying that this is a goodness from the Lord that was provided from the beginning that we should in, in, uh, press into. This is a way in the series of saying, what is on the table? What is accomplished there? We can compare it to a computer desk or a Zoom meeting or a playground or a concert hall, right? If the table is central, it's different. If the stage is central, it's different. 
What is accomplished at the table that can't be accomplished in other places? Another theme that I expect to see is how the table feeds all that we are. We are holistic creatures. What do I mean by that? Um, if we cater to our bodies and we neglect our minds, we suffer. If we cater to our knowledge and self and we forego community, we suffer. All that you are, your culture, your family, your history, your understanding, your training, your education, your job, all that you are being welcome at the table matters. That who you are is reflected here. I, I want you to understand this. Every hunger and every thirst is an invitation to come to Jesus. I think that this is something that we struggle with. If you start looking through scripture at all the passages that mention food and drink, you're going to get bored because it's all over all of scripture. I mean, it starts in the garden. It goes until the, the new creation where there, there's everything made new again. Throughout everything, there, there's examples of feasting and fasting, and there's examples of, of eating and sacrifices, and there's examples of, of what it looks like and people coming together and in the presence of my enemies and Jesus saying he's the living water. And we're going to get into a whole lot of that stuff throughout this series. But is this metaphor is this a simile? Do you all understand the difference between a metaphor and simile? Is this literal? And this theme is so throughout Scripture. I think if we, we suffer if we try to make this less than literal. I have this meme that I sent Leah sometime during the week. She preached on, on Noah. Um, I guess it's not a meme. It's just a comic strip. But, uh, but I'll, I'll read it for you if you can't quite see it. The first panel says, There will be a great flood. You must build an ark. Says God talking to Noah. And then there's a guy saying, the flood is a metaphor for spiritual danger. You have to build a spiritual ark in your heart. And Noah says, oh, yeah, I get it. And then in the next panel, he's flooded and drowning in water because he built a spiritual <laughs> ark instead of a physical ark. You know, sometimes I think we try to spiritualize things that are meant to be literal. Okay. And, and, and this is not saying that there's not spiritual ramifications to what the Lord is saying about all these things, but understanding that our bodies matter. And if we neglect them, if we cause them to suffer, if we don't recognize the goodness of breathing air into our lungs and living in community together and breaking physical bread together, we suffer because we are made for that. And to, to say that it's only about spiritual food and it's only about spiritual drink is neglecting, I think, the very real work done at the very real table when we come together. Th this is, I think, a challenging thought for those of us who grew up with a, a very inward faith, right, where it's all about what happens to my soul and it's all about these things that are inside and what the Lord's going to do for me eventually one day in heaven. When Jesus came to this world as a physical reality and broke bread physically with his disciples and went to a very physical cross and was very physically resurrected, it really matters, I believe, that our, our faith is not just something that we hold inside, but it's something that we practice. That our love is not something that I just feel in my heart for you, but it's something that we engage in, that we see what this looks like. So I do believe that every hunger, every thirst is an invitation to come to Jesus. And that means a whole lot more than that. So much of our identity is in our food. Have you noticed this? I've got a picture of some of the food that, that I got to enjoy this past week. Um, that, that first thing is a banuelo, which I'm probably saying wrong. But we went to, uh, to have dinner at a Mexican restaurant right when we started the conference. Roger Otero, who is another pastor, said, this is my childhood. Because, you know, this is what his family made. They made banuelo. So, so he, he took just, I mean, I, I thought one was nice. He had like a pot 
pile on his plate. And it was like a, a kid at Christmas because this is him. This is, this is what you grow up. You know when you have that food that just kind of feels like home? And it's not the same as probably anybody else in this room, but it just somehow this food is me, right? And so that then we went to go to a South African restaurant, and, uh, and Lee, who, who's in our church, was able to go with us there, and this was what she got to have. She got to have baboti and milk tarts. I was like, what is a milk tart? It's like a creme brulee without the crust and all sorts of things, but, but it was home, right? You're enjoying something that is way more than that. I ordered for us this morning at church that, that we could all enjoy kiffles together, they're not here yet. <laughs> so I apologize. I don't know what week we might be able to enjoy these, but I have 150 kiffles coming to my house at some point in time. They might not make it with our, our traveling everything. <laughs> these are in the bottom right. This is what I wanted we, us all to enjoy. This, my, my people, Slovaks, are not well known for our food, but we've come up with this. And in fact, it might not be us. It might be more Polish, but we'll ignore that fact. But, but, but kiffles are this fantastic, it's just a, 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 a kind of like a pastry wrapped around either a, an apricot or a prune or a nut filling. And it's just, I don't know, when I have them, it, it's not even my history back in, in, in Slovakia and Romania, because I wasn't part of that, but in Pennsylvania, where we have like little Slovakia, you know, and, and we all had this. And I'm pretty sure the Kiffel kitchen that I ordered this from is like six grandmothers living in Pennsylvania still making this for like the entire nation because people like me will order them once every few months. And this is like, you know, there's something that it scratches an itch. It scratches a part of who I am that nothing else can. Have you ever noticed that whenever you make food for somebody and they don't like it, you feel offended, right? Why? They're not rejecting me. They, they just don't like hot sauce or, they, they, you know, whatever it might be. The, the, they can't eat it because they're gluten intolerant. You know, it has nothing to do with that, but there's this part of me that, that, that feels, oh, no, I've missed the mark. I'm, I'm trying to share with you something of who I am, and I want you to enjoy something of who I am, my history, who I am, what we're about. And that same thing, whenever somebody does enjoy it, you feel a sense of joy and intimacy and communion, right? When somebody can have the food of your people and they're like, this is pretty good, then you're like, yeah, isn't it? You know, And you feel this, this pride and this joy that makes no logical sense, but it, it really does explain a part of who we are. <laughs> Can't eat the fish. Um, Food and drink is the essence of what fills us up, literally empowers us, literally forms us. We are made of what we have eaten and drank and drank and <laughs> throughout our lives, right? This is who we are. This is what sustains us. This is what makes us. So to look at this whole topic, those are kind of the things that I expect us to see over the course of this series. We're going to start with Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary. Beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, what's the thirstiest you've ever been? Like, I don't know if you've run things and you're just like dying for thirst. If you've gone camping like I have and 
you don't pack enough to drink. And you start, you know, hiking back and you're just like, I can't drink that water in that stream as much as I want to. And you just feel this gnawing thirst where you know that you'll just drink anything. Y'all may know of Bear Grylls. He's the famous guy uh, who has a number of TV shows, but he's a guy who does Alpha. Alpha is a, a wonderful thing that's come out of the Church of England that we've participated in. Uh, Alpha is a way of exploring what we hunger after, he says, meaning and intimacy and relationship in a very non-pressed, non-judgmental environment. That's Bear Grylls. You might know him more from the next photo. He is the man who famously drinks his own urine. So <laughs> he's a survivalist. And, and, and what he's, he does is he pushes the body to the extreme. Yeah, you might get sick seeing that on the screen too much. But, but it's a, a very funny thing whenever you realize this is, <laughs> this is the, the guy who famously thirsts so much with what he's put himself through that it's like, I will drink anything, right? This idea of in a dry and parched land, what are we supposed to do when my thirst is so strong that I just need something to quench this part of my soul? When we think about the origins of the vineyard, I don't know what you think of, but, but probably for me, there's this idea of these really wise, smart, brilliant theologians and worship leaders just penning the, the great words that we're to follow and, and, and writing these songs that are just so rich and full of life. Um, Carol Wimber has a very different memory of how we came about. And this is what, what she says. The vineyard wasn't established by a group of young, successful spiritual rock stars looking to start a new thing. Start with a bunch of burned-out Quakers that realized that they were missing something. Life-giving connection with the living God. So in desperation, they gathered in a house group to read the Bible, pray, and mostly worship. We were so tired and broken, all we could do was cry out to God and worship. As they sang and wept before the Lord, sometimes for an entire evening, a strange, unplanned, and wonderful thing started happening. God would show up. And they began experiencing his felt presence. Especially, especially when their worship got personal. And they sang songs directed to God rather than about God. Their worship was for God alone. They weren't trying to make anything happen. You might say they ran into God's supernatural power and all the goodies that accompanied it almost by accident by way of what has now become the vineyard trademark, intimate worship. This spiritual desire is why we exist. It's not about trying to start a new thing. It's not about trying to accomplish these amazing things of the Holy Spirit. It's about realizing, I'm so tired. <laughs> I have a hunger and a thirst in my bones that nothing else has been able to touch. I, I need more than what this world has. I need more than what religion has offered me. I need more than what just reading my Bible for a rote memorization will accomplish. I, I need something, and I, I believe it's in the name of Jesus. I believe that there's a fullness. I believe that there's something here. Can I find it in you, Lord? I press in, in a dry and parched land where I just need a drink. The answer is we can find it. So let me ask you, does this psalm represent your heart? Your love is better than life. It's a big statement. Your love is better than life. My whole being longs for you. My whole, every part of me longs for you earnestly, I seek you. But let's notice first where it starts. You, God, are my God. 
I, I think that this is a kind of a strange, and anytime that we have like a repetitive scripture, I'm always like, what is it saying? For freedom, you set me free. Like, what, what, what's actually going on here with you, God, are my God? In the Hebrew, it makes a little bit more sense because this is a Trinitarian statement. It's you, Elohim, are my God, my, my El. So it's the plurality of God, you are my God. All that you are, Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you gods are my God. It's, it's him saying that every bit of who you are, I want to be about. It's that idea of expressing the entirety of God and the entirety of his rule and reign, the entirety of his being, I'm acknowledging that that is who I want to worship. That's who I want to come close to. That's what will satisfy me. Not one sliver, not just the idea of a moral code, not just one idea of you like to heal bodies, not, not one idea of an eventually we'll be in heaven with you, this idea of the entirety of God, whatever you will be, you are my God. That's where we're starting. All that you are. There's a, a, a book that I, I read um, in my teen years that I, I found on my parents' bookshelf, and it just intrigued me because my parents were you know, good Christian people, and there's this book called Letters from a Skeptic. I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> what, what's in this thing? And so I started reading it, and, and there's this idea that he has here. You don't have to read it so much. I'm going to summarize it instead of, of giving you a quote from it. But the idea is that, that every hunger is meant to be realized in this world. Our bodies are evidence of this. Like we hunger, and there's food. Like how weird would it be if we were hungry, and there was no food, <laughs> right? We're thirsty, and there's water to drink. Our bodies betray the fact that there's a reality, there's an environment that we are made for because our bodies hunger and thirst for those things. In the same way, he says, understand that every culture hungers and thirsts for the creator. Every nation, every culture, every history, every people group has some reaching out, some desire to know where we came from and where we are going. This is one of the most human desires is to understand that in all of this stuff, when I look up at the stars, when I see the oceans, whenever I see the land, there's something behind this that is whispering to a part of my soul saying we were made for more than this, that I was made to know this, to be a part of this, that there's a goodness around me that I want to come in and enjoy to be a part of, and we are made to know God. Our desire, our common desire to know God is evidence of that. Before we go too far, let me point out something else in this. I will be so fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. Is your daily spirituality a chore, a task, is it turmoil, or is it pleasurable? Is it the satisfaction of your desires? Is it natural to who you are, or do you feel like you have to try and be someone else? This idea of food between sustenance and pleasure. You probably are not on one end of that spectrum or the other, right? Sometimes you just need a quick, you know, caloric meal and McDonald's is right there and why not, <laughs> you know? But sometimes, you know, we, we have this idea that, that we, we, we need to get something healthy in our system. So, you know, you, you get the kale, you get the spinach, you put it in a smoothie and you try to do a cleanse or whatever it might be. Try, trying to get the most nutrition you can out of this stuff. And, and what is the actual perfect, you know, recipe for this? Is there one meal that's meant to satisfy us always? And I think I, I'm not a dietitian or nutritionist, 
Leah is. But uh, uh, th- there's, a, there's a full smorgasbord, I think that's how you say that word, right, of, of what it's meant to look like. That we need a variety of things. We, we need to understand that, that our bodies crave all these things. The, the idea of cravings and how our body kind of knows what it needs is kind of fascinating to look at. But this idea between sustenance and pleasure is interesting. I think we struggle to hold two ideas at the same time. It's easy to say it's one thing or the other, that we're meant to be sustained. It's, it's a meal to get you through to the next day. Or it's easy to say it's for pleasure. Have you noticed how your tongue just rejoices in certain things and, and say, so seek that pleasure. It's hard for us to be both things at the same time. In the vineyard, we, we have a, a, a word for this. We call it the radical middle. And we often use this to talk about holding the, the word and the spirit at the same time. I've got a slide here. This is how I often think of it, of a place of tension, right? You've got the word here. You've got the spirit here. And they, they, they want to go in opposite directions. And so there's this place in the middle of, of kind of tension and, and turmoil. And, and, and that's where we can find, like, the truth. Because is it all word? No. Is it all spirit? No. It's that place of, of tension in the middle. And this is the way that I've thought about it. And since I know that this next slide is true, right, that, that there's a difference, there's a gap between man and God, and we see that the cross is there in the middle, bringing these two sides together, then I often end up with a thought like this, that Jesus is like this muscly guy in the middle holding together this rope, Right? That, that, that this rope is wanting to be torn apart, but if I look in the middle, I can see that, that Jesus is this place where it's there. And I think that this is the, a problem because it's more than this. Food speaks to, it represents, it nourishes who we are. And the thing is, I've tried to be superhuman. I've tried to be above my flesh. And this idea of Jesus holding the tension, it's like an idea of being a superhuman, right? And I think that if I can live in a place of tension then that's good evidence that my soul is strong, right? That, it, that if we can handle the debate, if we can handle all the turmoil, if we can handle all of this, then that's evidence clearly that something's working right. I got to tell you, after years or even decades of trying to think this way, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Because you're thinking, am I doing this right? Am I holding these tensions correctly? And, and I, I feel this, this turmoil in my soul, and it's like, it would just be nice if it, the tension could be relieved, It'd be really great if instead of feeling like I'm pulled in every single direction and I have to hold on to both of these extremes as, as much as I possibly can, I could just kind of let it be. And this was the struggle I had with the radical middle. I believe it. I understand it in some ways, but this was my understanding that I think was flawed. And I, it, this idea of trying to be a superhuman, I realize it's a lot like this, Spider-Man, right? This, uh, this, you need to be the superhuman to try to hold all this stuff together. And I believe that this is a misunderstanding, a misreading of Scripture because I think I can find fullness in being fully human as when the Creator looked at us and said, it is very good. This is a big idea. I don't want you to miss it. Instead of the rope being pulled apart, think of it this way, as a Venn diagram being pushed together. Instead of being one direction and the other direction, they're being pushed together. And you know what you find right there in that place of overlap? peace. You find Jesus himself. You find the Spirit, where you see where the Word and the Spirit are overlapping, where they're working correctly together, and you can rest with it, and you can trust it, and there's not this idea of, do I go left, do I go right, but you find this place of peace and rest. And this, to me, is a big difference. Instead of being pulled apart, being pushed 
together, finding that area where you can press in. I wrote this in my notes, and this is kind of a big story, but I, I want you to hear is that the gospel is a story of resurrection, not of immortality. The gospel is a story of resurrection, not of immortality. And I think we're trying to make things what they're not meant to be. We're trying to make the, 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 the table so supernatural. We're trying to make it only about this inward truth that the fact that the Lord wants to feed me, the fact that he wants us to feed each other, <laughs> the fact that he wants to feed and clothe the lost and the least and those who don't have, don't spiritualize that. This is a spiritual act. It is goodness to be found here in that area that, that things just make sense. When the Lord looks at your, your, you and who you are and says, I want you to have food, Oh, you mean for my soul? No, I want you to have food. Sometimes I, I hear pastors talk about when people fall asleep in their sermons. It's a, it's a sign of great respect. <laughs> it means you found a place of peace with the calming voice that they have. I don't know if I'm there yet, but y'all can pray for me, right? This idea that, that, that the Lord cares for who you are and what your needs are, they matter to him. Can we actually enlarge our faith to say it's not only about my soul, it's not only about these things. The Lord cares for me. And this idea of, of the table being matching who I am, that, that, it's the, that it's not that I'm superhuman, it's that I'm fully human, that's what's found at the table. I need food. If I don't eat food, I will starve. And it, the act of eating is not one that removes me from the presence of God, it's one that can bring me closer to him as we share our table. Um. I want to read for you. I've, I've quoted this from time to time. I, I've never else in my life read an obituary from someone and been struck by the notes of the gospel as I have, have with this man in Capone. Um, th this is an absolutely incredible uh, account of this man's life and his vision. He's an Episcopal um, priest and chef. He's written a number of books. And, and basically, I had never heard of him before until he had passed, and somebody shared his obituary, and I just thought, this is the kind of stuff that I want to be about. It's because of him that I started carrying a pocket knife around with me. True story. And you'll, it'll make sense in a second why. And, and the, the whole thing just kind of accounts for me, a guy who kind of got the table in a lot of ways. So I, I was going to pull some excerpts, but I'm going to read for you the whole thing, because I, I think it's beautiful. Knives mattered. No man should be without a pocket knife, preferably gold-handled. How else would you peel an orange or cut a sprig of privet blossom for your second youngest daughter? A blunt knife was not just a bad way to hurt an onion, but sacrilege, an insult to God's creation, its beauty, and its excellence. Robert Capone could spread scorn as liberally as his beloved butter. Appetizers before dinner, for example, were anathema. They should be called de-appetizers, especially when served with cocktails. They blunted hunger's edge as surely as chopping on the wrong surface would ruin one of his precious carbon steel, never stainless, blades. Food, he believed, shaped and reflected the way you live. So aim high. Why bother with second-rate ingredients, gimmicky gadgets, and rushed preparation when providence has ordained such enjoyable alternatives? He told his readers to save money by throwing the junk food, such as supermarket cheese, with the texture, but nowhere near the flavor of rubber gloves, out of their shopping basket. Then they could buy something decent instead, such as the best available butter. 
The realm of the irreplaceable is no place to count cost, he wrote in The Supper of the Lamb, a metaphysical treatise on cooking published in 1967 and popular ever since. Better still, head for the butcher and haggle over a really big leg of lamb, a colossal loin of pork, or half a dozen cut-priced chickens. Then the fun starts. Boning, those knives again, browning, no flour please, and roasting, try it, Swedish style, with sweetened milky coffee, or casseroling, emphatically no water, just stock or wine, or preferably both. He had no truck with American abstinence. God invented cream. Furthermore, having made us in his image, he means for us to share his delight in his excellence, he wrote. He liked a drink or two as well, a married couple's half-bottle amid meatloaf when brawling children was one of the cheerful minor lubrications of the sandy gears of life. But modern-day Americans, he wrote glumly, drink the way we exercise, too little and too hard. He knew how to dine out, too, carve gracefully when asked, discreetly sharpening the knife on the back of a roasting tin if necessary, and in restaurants, order something that has involved real work, not just reheating or frying. This is where I'm going to struggle. Cassoulet, charcuterie garnet, and tripes niçois promise more of the cook's mind and heart than torn tornados ever could. I think I got through that all right. And if you can, try the starter before you choose the main course. It will give you an idea on how to proceed. Yet he neither preached nor practiced perfection. For all of his fame as a cookery writer in the New York Times and elsewhere, he was an amateur, he insisted. An experimenter, not an expert. Recipes are like flying buttresses. You find out whether they work on only by trying them out. No souffléed sandwiches, no Chartres Cathedral. Eaters should be adventurous too. A diet must perhaps be balanced, but only unbalanced tastes allow you to enjoy the astonishing oddness of the world. He cherished a bottle of loathsome chemical kirsch, sipping it as a reminder of the nasty flavors that have no limits. Casualness, though, does have its limits. Dinner parties, for example, are an act of love. So think hard about the mix of guests and their seating, and serve dishes you have cooked before. Flavor trumps hygiene. A precious iron pan or wok should be wiped, not washed, and tell complainers that you're working on godliness now and cleanliness can wait. Only your family may be teased with a cigar wrapper in the casserole or a match in the gravy. Entertaining need not be fancy, of course. The single grace temporal blessing, he wrote, was a long evening of old friends, dark bread, good wine, and strong cheese. Mr. Capone had no time for strict scorekeeping. In the kitchen or elsewhere, grace, not willpower, dealt with sin. Jesus came to save the world, not to judge it. Showy piety, legalism, quietism were all abominations almost as much as the cheap oil and harsh flavors of phony ethnic food. His own scorecard had some blots. Divorce from the mother of his six children cost him his parish on Long Island and his post as dean of an Episcopal seminary. His 27 books on theology cooking columns only partly fill the gap. But there are worse things than being poor, he wrote, such as losing sight and the greatness of small things. At a posh church in East Hampton, he started his sermon by burning a $20 bill with the words, I have just defied your God. <laughs> To see him as a gourmet was to miss the point. Idolatry of food was wrong, unfair both to the ingredients and to God. Cooking was a means, not an end. Food and company, he wrote, don't slake man's thirst for being. They wet it beyond all bounds. It was all part of the real work, to look at the things of the world and to love them for what they are. That is, after all, what God does. Man was not made in God's image for nothing. 
Even the humblest meal could be a Eucharist, with a cook serving both as its priest and through loving sacrifice of time and effort, its victim too. That's the theology I'm trying to get us at. This, this holistic understanding of what the Lord is doing in life today and tomorrow. That there's sustenance and richness to be enjoyed. That you will be sustained and there's joy to be found in that same thing. And I think that we, we mistake this so much when we make it one way or the other instead of realizing that there's an overlap of God's goodness and pleasure and provision all to be found at the table. So we're going to move to ministry time. The invitation is if you're hungry to come feast. I hope that this whole series will, what he just said there at the end of that obituary, is is to whet your appetite. Whet your appetite for the Father himself, for the Son, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but for life to be lived out amongst all of us. Let us have a, a huge appetite for life. Because sometimes I feel like our appetites have been dulled. We don't have that hunger and thirst for life. We send it, spend it mindlessly scrolling on our phones. We waste life. We waste what this gift is before us. And, and I, I think that that's perhaps the greatest crime of all. And it's one, not of this belligerent uh, mistake that we make, but it's one of a casual just dullness that creeps in over time. It starts with a minute here, a 30 minutes there, an hour there, just a little break here. And before we know it, years have gone by. Our kids have grown up. And what have we been doing with ourselves? So if you're hungry, come feast. If you're thirsty, come refresh. But if you're not, here are the questions. Are you filled with something else? This is a constant battle in my house. You see the girls reach for a snack right at 5.30 when dinner is being cooked. And it's like, no, (laughs) we're going to eat. But I'm hungry now. We take an easy fix, right? Something cheap and quick. I feel a a spiritual hunger growing. I feel desire for God coming in my bones. But you know what? A Netflix show will probably satisfy that, you know? I have this this desire to, to engage with community. But you know what? I can just quick watch a video. And that'll be just about as good. And we dull our hunger with cheap substitutes right when our hunger starts to go. When's the last time you let yourself get hungry and then let yourself be satisfied by the Lord and not a cheap substitute? Do you recognize your hunger as hungering for something of God? Or do you recognize it just as a fact of life and I just, I just don't want to be hungry? <laughs> I just don't want to be irritable. I'm going to get hangry if I'm hungry for too long. Are we filled up with something else? Sometimes we miss meals because we're just so busy and we're distracted. You know, maybe you know this feeling like, you know, you're, you've got a long day at work and you start at it and now it's three o'clock and you haven't eaten. We can fill our sli- ourselves not with a, a substitute of something that we're hungering for, but just with time. We're so distracted, we're so busy that our hunger is, is not even a second nature. It's just something that we, we put off to the margins. We put it off to the last minute because it's just not a focus of our lives. We think that there are other things more important. This is what I'm saying. Our hunger is who we are. Our desire for the table is an expression of who we're meant to be. And coming together enjoying that is enjoying life. It's what, what we're supposed to be doing. We have to eat all the time. Have you ever thought how you know, incurably uh, wasteful that is to have to eat all the time? As, as humans, we have to breathe all the time. We have to eat and we have to drink and we have to sleep all the time. 
And maybe there's something good and godly to be recognized in that. My wife is not mad at me or anything. I've preached, just so you're aware. I knew that she was going to have to leave. Or maybe we're sick. Have you ever been so sick that your appetite's just left? I think we often realize that, that when we've sinned, we've done wrong, and we have this idea of, of, of right and wrong. But I, I found that there's a better understanding, and this is what, what Duke and Marie start saying with Sozo, this idea of life and salvation and healing being what the Lord came to do. And often whenever we sin or we're tempted or whatever, it's like we're getting sick. We might not be dead yet, <laughs> but we're sick. Something in our soul is not working right. And, and our bodies are not functioning. And, and you've got a virus, you're sick, you don't know what's going on, but you just can't eat. You're just not hungry. You don't have that appetite. And it's a sign that something somewhere is wrong. So if you're not hungry, if, if your appetites are not sharp, maybe this is going to help you. Apathy, fatigue, disappointment, and sorrow can make you sick. And sometimes I don't think we realize that. Disappointment and sorrow can make us sick. Then we have no appetite. We feel like, I don't even know where to go. I've, I've got this kind of lingering thing, and, and I, I, I'm just going to deal with it, I guess. I'm just going to wait. When the invitation instead is to come to the table to experience what it is. You can come on up now, Ethan. So that's where we're going to be going for the next few weeks. Like I said, this is all throughout Scripture. This is all throughout, I think, what we do as a church. This is something that everybody in this room will be doing. Here's the thing. You can't get away from practicing this sermon. You're going to have to eat. <laughs> You're going to have to drink. And I, I do. I, I pray that, that you will be able to look at those things, not just as a, a necessary function for biological life, but as an expression of the Creator's design and purpose for you. Not as something that, that you just have to get through to, to keep going to the next day, but as an opportunity to encounter Jesus, to encounter fullness, to encounter life, the richness of all of this. That takes intentional living. It takes a lot of choice. And I, I do love that, that we've got um, these words, which I think I want to remind us of again. There's someone here today who feels constant fatigue. He's bogged down by responsibility and commitments instead of enjoying the gifts that life brings. You're trying to keep yourself afloat on your own, but God longs to be the oasis you come to for respite. Truest and deepest rest is with him. That's the table. The church is to be a product of his Holy Spirit. Get ready. It's the table. Let the glory of his train fill this temple, both our church and us as individuals. It's the table. That's life. If these things are awakening something in your soul, we want to do ministry. What does that mean? That means you come forward. We've, we've practiced this whenever we had Duke and Murray here. It's no smacking of anybody on the forehead. It's an invitation to say, come Holy Spirit. We will try to be prophetic in this because we believe that the Lord is speaking. We believe that he has real things he wants to do and accomplish. This isn't a, a, a quick little nice platitude of a prayer and saying, now get on out of here. We want to engage with what the Lord, the, the living God is actually doing today. We believe in that. 
We believe every time we come to this table, it's an opportunity to encounter the deep richness and fullness of what the Lord has for us today. And that's different than what we had last week. That's the beauty of the meal. We need it every day. We, we keep doing this. We keep coming back because there's more life to be lived. There's more stuff to be enjoyed. There's a richness, a depth, a fullness to be found.